All right, Jesse, last week's Poisoner was truly something else. What's the story this week? Our hundredth episode has everything you've come to expect from Love Murder. Badly behaved aristocrats, wealth beyond belief, scandalous sex acts, and of course, one shocking murder. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about dirty, rotten cheats, strangers in the sheets, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Speaking of Patreon, we also have some bonus episodes coming up. We're going to be recording one on Monday, so it should be out later next week. That's going to be really fun. We have invited Bob Mata from the Defense Diaries to come on and Andy and I are going to review with him some of the craziest murder defenses of all time and whether or not they worked. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, I think it's going to be fun. But I also want to thank everyone who joined our Patreon in the last week. So we'd like to thank and shout out to Letitia D and Henriette B., Caitlin B. and Wendy N. Lily B. and Alicia K. And Sabrina B. Thank you all so much. So excited to get all of this good Patreon stuff cooking. But what we really have to talk about right now is that it is our 100th episode, Andrea. I like when I used to listen to podcasts in every single moment of my free time before we had one. I used to always be so like aghast when there was over 100 episodes of a podcast. It seems pretty crazy. I know that I don't know exactly the statistic, but I did read when we first got started that most podcasts quit after their sixth episode that early, something like that. Like the vast majority of people who try to start a podcast decide to quit around that time. Yeah, you're like, we just got to hold out past six. We just got to hold out past six. We made it. Now we're at 100. (laughs) Now we're at 100. And uh, it's definitely because of all of you listeners and lovers. If we didn't have you guys, we wouldn't have the mojo to keep going. It's honestly so encouraging. I definitely think that's what got us to six and beyond was we started an Instagram and we started actually hearing from you and we had some write-ins for cases. And I think that just knowing that even like four of you... (laughs) (laughs) we're listening at the beginning, made me think we got to keep putting these out for those four people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's awesome. And now we have what, like over a hundred case suggestions as well. Oh yeah. We have so many. We have so many. Actually, today's case is a case suggestion. And I had such a hard time. Andy knows. So I'm going to tell you guys, I was dying over trying to pick a perfect case for our hundredth episode. It was stressing you out for like months. Months and months. And then I went into full, I can't even think about it and like didn't pick it until like four days ago. (laughs) 
was so stressed that I just blocked it out for a little while. And what happened was that I thought maybe I would use our most requested case, which everybody knows about. It's the Ken and Barbie killers. And I just, at the end of the day, I could not do it. My gut, and we always say, trust your gut on this side. It's just been done so much. And I think what people like about the show that we do, Andy, is that for the most part, we try to do relatively lesser known cases. So I went back, I looked at our case suggestions. I looked at the numerous books on my shelves and I was like, what makes a really good love murder? And I remembered that the first episode that I was completely in love with was number three, Can You Not Kill Me? I'm Trying to Have Sex Here. Yep. And that was the white mischief, all of those aristocrats behaving so poorly in Africa. And I was like, I need something like that. And thanks to Paisley C, I found just the case. I'll get into my sources a little later because I don't want to give too much away. And I think then we should just jump into this hundo. Let's do it. Throughout history, the British aristocracy has been just chock full of badly behaved royals. We have, of course, the philandering Earl of Errol from episode three, the one that I just mentioned, the notorious Lord Lucan, an aristocrat who murdered his nanny after mistaking her for his wife. Oh, my and God. Then managed to escape and no one knows where he is to this very day. We are going to definitely cover that case at some point because it's fascinating. So crazy. There's also King Edward VII, a.k.a. Bertie, who was known to be something of a connoisseur of Parisian brothels. So much so that one bordello even devoted a suite of rooms for him with his heraldic crest engraved on the bedroom door. Stop it. Well, this was Queen Victoria's son, and apparently he loved his mother, and she just could not control him. However, he still kept a framed photo of his mother on his bedside in the bordello, and he was said to dutifully say his evening prayers every night, getting on his knees in front of the bed, and he would ask his numerous bedmates to join him for prayers. But one aristocratic family's reputation remained unblemished. This is the Shaftesbury's. The first Earl of Shaftesbury was a swashbuckling hero of the English Civil War and advisor to Cromwell. He became the founding father of the Whig Party, which I believe basically is the precursor to the more liberal party in the UK. So yes, the seventh Earl was a political firebrand who is credited with the abolition of child chimney sweeps. Apparently in the 17 and 1800s, they would force little boys to climb 30 feet up inside of chimneys to clean out all the nooks and crannies that they couldn't reach with brushes. And if those tiny little children became trapped, they would just leave them there to die of smoke inhalation. So this is, it's so crazy that this guy was considered revolutionary for banning small children from being left and abandoned in chimneys. And the other thing that he did, which apparently was crazy at the time, was that he made a maximum 10-hour workday for factory workers. So he didn't invent unions or unionize, but he basically said, you're not allowed to work people to yeah. death yeah. anymore. Thank you. That's very nice, sir. 
the Shaftesbury family was also instrumental in abolishing slavery in the UK. So these are some good peoples, an impeccable lineage with not one rotten apple to take down the barrel, not one scandal to distract from the wealthy family's philanthropy and good works, until the 10th Earl, Lord Anthony Ashley Cooper, who at the improbable age of 61 became a class A rake with devastating consequences. So Michael Litchfield is the author who wrote the book that I'm going to source at the end, at least the title. And I have to read this introduction to what happened to our Earl, who we're going to call Tony, and his transformation. He wrote... An irresponsible, roistering, ruddish, boozing, cocaine-sniffing, and womanizing rebel was born. Whoa. Sending shockwaves through the House of Lords and royal circles, plus the villagers of deepest Dorset, where so many locals depended on the Shaftesbury estate for their livelihood. The catastrophic, almost unprecedented descent into darkness and violent, murderous oblivion in such noble circles had, it seemed, begun. Wow. Who said that? That was what Michael Litchfield? Michael Litchfield. Snap, 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 snaps. That's some great writing right there. So let's open with the little boy who would grow up to be the man at the center of all of this insanity. Anthony Ashley Cooper called Tony to his friends and simply the Earl to his villagers was born in London on May 22nd, 1938. His father was also named Anthony Ashley Cooper, Anthony being the first name given to all firstborn sons destined for earlhood, which also makes this quite a sticky family tree because there's just a jamillion Anthony Ashley Coopers. Yeah. I'm going to call our Anthony either the Earl or Tony going forward, and I'll call his father Anthony the Elder. So our Tony was the son of an attractive and gregarious French woman named Francoise Soulier. She was the second wife of Anthony the Elder. His first wife was a scandalous chorus girl named Sylvia Hawks, who was rumored to have peddled her intimacies, if you will, for cold hard cash. She was known as a stunner and a serial seductress who aimed higher with every subsequent marriage. After her first brief and disastrous marriage to the elder Anthony, she wed a baron, two movie stars, Douglas Fairbanks, as well as Clark Gable. Shut up. Uh Uh-huh. And then finally, she ended her last marriage with an honest-to-goodness prince of the Eastern European country of Georgia. Whoa. Yeah. I thought you were going to say prince. Prince. So she ended with an honest-to-goodness prince. So get it, girl. That's impressive. It is. Oh, and thanks to listener Kelsey on the Facebook group, and I know also some people chimed in on Instagram. I do know the correct term to say what she did now. She secured that bag. Secured the bag. I mean, we both. She secured the bag. We both failed miserably with that. It was good. I think people got a kick out of it. So second wife Francoise was a formidable beauty in her own right, but a much more aristocratic choice who would turn out to be a great countess and an imposing mother figure. She would 100% have the number one spot in her son Tony's heart forever. And 
maybe in his loins as well to get pretty Freudian about it. So we're going to get into that later. Many believe that Tony's closeness with his mother was a result of his father dying when the boy was only eight years old. Elder Anthony, who was the heir to the earldom, passed away suddenly, never ascending to earlhood and leaving behind little Anthony and his six-year-old sister, Frances. Mother Francoise wasted very little time moving her children back to her home country where she met and married a French colonel named Francois Goussault only five months after Elder Anthony's death. So there were some rumors that the marriage had actually been troubled for some time. And many believe that's why she didn't really take that long to grieve. So I don't know if there was any sort of relationship already going with this French colonel or if it was like, I'm already, you know, single, ready to mingle, and it just was the perfect guy. But they did seem very happy. And now we have stepdad Francois, mother Francoise, daughter Francis, and they're all living in France. I'm obsessed. Yes. Even for a Francophile like myself, though, that is a lot of France in one family right there. Now, I have heard conflicting reports about how close Anthony grew to his new stepfather. Some accounts maintained that the two were thick as thieves, while others reported a cordial but not especially close relationship. In any case, he grew up not really having a very solid father figure. Even if he got along with his stepfather, it didn't seem like he was an adequate replacement for the father he lost. Okay. And his grandfather, the ninth Earl, was not only busy running the Shakespeare estate and attempting to save their ancestral home from rot, this gigantic, beautiful manor house, the size of like a French chateau, yeah, was built in 1651. So long ago. So long ago. So it was really hard to manage the upkeep on a place like this. Yeah. So even by the time our Tony's grandfather was managing the estate, it was already beginning to fall into disrepair. So he was trying to stave that off. And he was also working as a spy in the Second World War. Uh, what? Yes. So he was um, responsible for a hub of communication for agents, I think, is what he did. Yeah. So he was very involved in some level in espionage during the World War II. So given all of those things, there was no time for mentorship there. And Tony spent much of his childhood in France anyway. So as a result of this lack of a very strong paternal figure, he clung rather obsessively to his mother as his entire world. The young Earl-to-be was educated at the very best schools in England, just as all of the other Anthony Ashley Coopers had before him. He went to Eton and Oxford naturally. He developed a deep love for music at Oxford, which would eventually lead him to become the chairman of the London Philharmonic Orchestra from 1966 to 1980. Ah, those musicians. In 1961, the ninth Earl passed away and Tony became the 10th Earl of Shaftesbury at the very young age of only 22 years old. Wow. He inherited the title the ancestral home of St. Giles that, like I said, was in a state of disrepair, but also a shite ton of money, real estate, priceless art, and other valuable assets. When Tony became the Earl, he also became one of the top 10 richest people in the UK. Wow. That is crazy at that age. 
I don't know if we've talked about this that much, but generational wealth is like an insane thing. Yeah. Because they came into power in, I don't even know, the early 1600s maybe. So it's just been money on top of money on top of money on top of money. Yeah. Yeah, they came into power in like the mid-1600s, so they've just been conglomerating their wealth in every generation since. So the new Earl seemed kind of ill at ease with his new position. He was pretty introverted, and he did not have that fiery brand of political oratory skills that it seemed like a lot of his ancestors had had. So he only did ever one speech in the House of the Lords, and... From what I read, it was kind of confusedly received because it was kind of more like poetry versus a political statement. So people were like, I don't really know what you're trying to get across here. And that was like his one and only speech. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, he wasn't a big, he didn't like to be on display. He did take up the cause of environmental conservation and he did a good job with it. He really did. He supervised the planting of more than a million trees. Wow. Oh my God. Um, more than a million trees. He won the Duke of Cornwall Award for Forestry and Conservation, which was presented to him by Prince Charles. He also served as the president of the Hawk and Owl Trust and the vice president of Sir David Attenborough's British Butterfly Conservation. That's really sweet. Isn't that really sweet? He was also, Andy, you're not individually a fan of these creatures, but I know you are generally a fan of them. He was obsessed with bats. I do think they're really cute, but not when they're sleeping in the room with my best friend's new baby. (laughs) I, I think we talked about this on the show, but last summer when Andy came to visit, a bat somehow flew into our house. We really thought we got it out at night. We cheers with tequila shots because we were so happy that the Dan overcame the bat. And then mid-morning the next morning, I come to find it sleeping on my child's floor next to his bassinet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was that was an intense 24 hours trying to figure out if that bat had rabies. Oh, it sucks because they are so cute, but they do carry rabies. They do. So yes, he was obsessed with the conservation of bats and especially fought tirelessly for one endangered species and did succeed in getting it off the endangered list. And when he was young, I would say he was fairly classically handsome guy. He looks very, I mean, it's really what we think of when we think of that era, the 19... 50s, 60s, British guys, like you you think about the crown. That's, he kind of had that aura about him. I think about Austin Powers, so. No, <laughs> he was not Austin Powers. He was more like young Prince Philip, I would say. That look like tall. He has that like royal long nose. Yeah. Yeah, he was a good looking guy. And even though he was relatively introverted, everyone said that he did actually have great charisma, especially after he had a few glasses of champagne. He kind of came out of his shell. He was more fun. And because of his bond with his mother, he was always gravitating towards women, and he seemed to be more at ease with the fairer sex. So it's not entirely surprising that the Earl's first wife was a beautiful Italian woman 12 years his senior named Bianca de Piolis. Most likely due to his mother's continental heritage, Tony had absolutely no interest in dating English girls, whom apparently he criticized while he was in university as round-shouldered, unsophisticated garglers of pink champagne. Excuse me? 
Very rude. There's some absolutely wonderful English girls out there who love to do more than gargle pink champagne, although I wouldn't mind them. So he would go on to exclusively date European women for the most part. Wow. Okay. That was his type. Francoise was less than enthused about this match due to Bianca's age and the fact that she was already a divorcee. Nonetheless, Tony and Bianca wed in July of 1966 after a whirlwind courtship when the Earl was 28 and the new Countess 40 years old. Wow, I love it. Well, don't get too excited because sometimes it seems like mother really does know best because the marriage became a misery for both parties pretty soon thereafter. And it never produced a Shaftesbury heir, which obviously they needed somebody to carry on the line. Bianca was allegedly very fiery tempered and often picked fights with the notoriously passive Earl, who instead of ever fighting back would simply just pull a disappearing act and go away for days at a time. Like a Homer Simpson into the bush. 100% Andy. That was the refrain of everything that I read about this guy was that he hated conflict. He hated confrontation he was very avoidant. So whenever there were times of stress, whenever he was faced with some sort of aggression, he would just disappear and go away somewhere and do something else and put it out of his mind. He was just not the type of guy who could deal with it. That's his introvert coming out though. You know, like I feel like a lot of introverts wouldn't want to be confrontational and argue and all of that. Yeah. And I do think for You know, it's so funny what people have as fighting styles. Like people are like, I hate it when people like walk away and leave me when I'm a fight. Like I need them to fight with me and work it out and talk it out. And I need this resolution. And other people, it's a coping mechanism. They just shut down. They're just like, I I have to go away. I can't say anything to you right now. That's probably one of the biggest problems with relationships is when you can't like understand each other's like form of diffusing. Yes. (laughs) Like what are you going to do? You know, there's no way that you guys are going to be able to like, understand each other and like come to any sort of resolution ever if you don't understand how and what each party needs to do to like cope and deal with things it's impossible the key to relationship success is not how you behave towards each other when times are good and things are new and you're getting along it's that's easy it's how you communicate when you're both mad as hell and everything is in the shitter yep (laughs) (laughs) So he started pulling this disappearing act, which, of course, made her even angrier. And this is not to say that, you know, she was the one causing all the problems in their relationship, because when he took these flights away from the home, he would go to places that near where they owned vacation homes, like they had a place in Versailles, they had a place in Hove, I think it's pronounced. Sorry, guys. It's like a, it's a a pretty place in England. And he would seek out high end sex club bordello type establishments to find very elegant, intelligent and well-paid call girls. His taste always ran to the French women or at least the French-speaking women. He, Just like there, his mommy. Exactly. There was one club that would import girls from the Moulin Rouge in Montmartre. Stop. Just for him. Stop it. Uh-huh. 
And actually, he loved it because he loves speaking French so much. He spoke great French because obviously his mother, but it got to the point where people in France, when they met him, had no idea he wasn't a native Frenchman because he spoke accentless French. Adulterous Anthony did not limit his dalliances to well-paid escorts, however, and by the time he and Bianca ended their 10-year marriage, author Michael Litchfield estimated that he had been unfaithful to his wife with as many as 100 other women. That is so much work. I mean, it's not that much work if you have a financial transaction and you're getting in and getting out in one night, I guess. That's, I guess, 10 years, 100 women. That's 10 women a year. Yeah, that's not so bad. Maybe he did more. I wouldn't be shocked if there was more. I guess how often could he get away from the estate? Who knows? But yeah, still, 100 women is a lot of women. 100 women for our 100th episode. So they did eventually divorce, and they cited adultery as the reason for the divorce, on Anthony's part, of course. And there was one woman named, but the name was redacted. And this is because the author, Michael Litchfield, contends that the Earl's most beloved mistress was none other than Hollywood royal Grace Kelly, who became literal royalty when she married Prince Rainier and became the Princess of Monaco. So... He devoted, I'm going to tell you guys the name of the book at the end, but he devoted a lot of this book to this theory of a relationship between Princess Grace and our Tony, the 10th Earl of Shaftesbury. Wow. Yeah. So his belief is the name was redacted so it didn't cause an international scandal. I mean, who doesn't love an international scandal? (laughs) Just the people involved don't love it. Everybody else eats it up like gelato. Uh, I guess I need something more French, creme brulee. So the marriage had been over for long before the 10-year mark, but the confrontation of Verse Earl had only begun divorce proceedings in 1976 in order to almost immediately marry a woman named Christina Eva Montan. Christina was two years younger than the Earl, the daughter of a former Swedish ambassador to Germany. She was also a divorcee who brought two bright children into the marriage, a son who would grow up to be a television producer in the UK and a daughter who would go on to practice law in New York City. Wow, okay. Smart kiddos. Mama Francoise was actually delighted with this poised divorcee and she delightfully gave her seal of approval. And she was right. I mean, everyone was. Everyone loved Christina. She was an excellent countess. Everyone like who lived and worked in the village that was part of their estate just adored her. She was down to earth. She ran everything extremely well. She just wasn't somebody that had a lot of airs. She was about getting the work done and being a great maternal figure, a great countess, somebody you look up to. So it really seemed for at least a little while, the Earl put aside his rakish ways and became a dedicated family man. First son and heir, Anthony, was born in 1977, followed two years later by his younger brother, Nicholas Edmund Ashley Cooper. Despite the fact that Christina was incredible at running the state and raising her kids and just being generally awesome, it didn't take too long for the Earl to start once again taking off on his secret jaunts. Uh, Yes. So author Michael Litchfield 
writes about the Earl's tendency to just leave without warning during times of stress. And he said that this behavior became very well known to his friends and family, and they used to call it semi-humorously his vanishing trick. But eventually, of course, these disappearances were not regarded as so funny after all and really eroded his relationship with Christina. Yeah, when you're abandoning your wife and new kids, like, not cool, bro. Yeah, and I mean, it was more than just, you know, they had collectively four children, you know, her kids that she brought into the marriage and the two that they had just had together. And it was a lot of work to run this gigantic estate. I mean, they said it's like, I think it's like 5,500 acres. It might be more. Wow. Okay. That's And this, the house is ginormous. And they did not, their family did not actually live in St. Giles' house. They lived on a different property on the estate. But still, there's just a lot of work to be done. And so she was left not only with the family, also with running all of his official affairs. Meanwhile, he was carrying on affairs of a whole different manner and backslid into his old habit of employing high-end escorts. The Earl was apparently charming, gracious, witty, and kind during all of these exchanges with these women. When he engaged a woman for the evening, he would always wine and dine them, act like a perfect gentleman, and pay extra to have them join him for breakfast the next morning even grosser to me like when he has a kid when he has kids and a wife at home like and he's like wooing these women yeah it's like just bang it and get them out like don't have breakfast with them the next morning like you know how much his wife probably wants to have breakfast with him in the morning like I want to have breakfast with my man in the morning I mean that's a good counterpoint I was like impressed though because it seemed like the women that he dealt with had such great respect for him and one woman called him the client of a lifetime because he was so gentle and so sweet and so respectful. And there's so many men that obviously treat sex workers of every level, every stripe, every kind as less than women. Of course. And that's all cool if you're not married. Well, I you know what I mean? Ima- <laughs> I know, but I have to imagine like a big percentage of men who go to sex workers are married, don't you think? I don't want to think that, no. <laughs> I choose I choose to opt out of that. Andy's pulling a Taylor Swift. I would like to extricate myself from this narrative. <laughs> uh, yeah, in any case, it was, yes, very shitty to his wife, but apparently he was very gentle and kind and respectful with all of the women that he engaged. And they said that it was nice because he didn't like weird sex insofar as anything that was going to physically hurt them. Like he wasn't into rough sex. He wasn't into demeaning sex. He wasn't into, you know, certain forms of like some sort of painful BDSM or something like that. They did say, however, that there was one thing odd and all the women that he slept with said the same thing was that he would request very vaguely that his partner mother him. And without fail, everyone said the same thing. When he climaxed, he always yelled mother. Okay, that's really intense. Yes. And so one of the women who was interviewed for this book, who was with him for a little while, and we're going to talk about her in a second, said that she felt like, that was the reason why he 
engage sex workers rather than just having dalliances with like other aristocratic women? Because of his overwhelming mommy issues that he didn't want to impress on his wife. He felt more comfortable being able to share that type of experience with somebody he was paying. That was her theory on it. Well, just because you pay him doesn't mean they're going to keep their cute little mouth shut. <laughs> Apparently not, because I think a lot of people talk to this author. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Freud would have a heyday with that one. Oh my God. Yeah. Despite these extramarital activities, Tony was not always an absent father, husband, and Earl. His son, Nicholas, said the following in the book. One of the things that is often skated over is how much respect and loyalty the people on the estate had for my father. There was a huge fondness for him until the drink started to take over and dominate his personality. He was a very charming man and spent many years doing amazing things to the estate and running this place very well. His father, he said, was a gentle soul who suffered from alcoholism and depression, and he used alcohol as a way of curing the pain and loneliness of his childhood. My earliest memory is of him clasping my hand and telling me how much he loved me and how he never stopped saying how much he loved me and how proud he was of me. For this reason, we never stopped trying to help my father and protect him from the world around him. There was a lot of sensitivity here and an unwillingness to deal with reality that led to some very bad behaviors. He was already prone to excessive drinking and depression, but things really, 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 really went off the rails in August of 1999 when Tony's beloved mother, Francoise, passed away from cancer. Oh... Yeah. So he's already, I feel like, somebody who just was not good at dealing with all of the responsibilities of his life. And then that happened. And his sister said about this period in his life, For my brother, her death was a catastrophe. He adored her. She had been his protector and greatest admirer since the death of our father in 1947 when Anthony was eight and I was six. When our mother died, it was as though my brother had become an orphan at age 61. Without her, he felt emotionally bereft. He lost his grip on reality. Shattered and suffering what seemed to be a complete emotional and mental breakdown, the 10th Earl of Shaftesbury abandoned his wife, children, stepchildren, and responsibilities of the estate at the age of 61. At this point, all the kids are in their 20s. So it's not like he's abandoning small children. I think Nicholas was already in New York City where he became a DJ, actually, Andy. No way. Yeah, the younger son became a very popular DJ in New York in the early 2000s. I think he went by Nick AC. And he'd like, started a bunch of parties, like famous, like DJ parties. And he became actually an incredible entrepreneur. So that's what the younger guy was doing. Older Anthony was preparing to take over the estate. And when his father abdicated his responsibilities and fucked off, Anthony started running the estate, even though he was still a very young man at this point. Tony returned to his beloved France, taking up a suite of rooms at a four-star hotel in Paris's Montmartre district, which is our favorite when we go to Paris. Yep, Dirty Dicks. The best tiki bar in the world. <laughs> so there he began a daily diet of champagne, cigarettes, cocaine, and high-end call girls. There he began a relationship with one of those women, pseudonymed Lucille in the book. 
She spoke to the author and detailed a loving relationship in which intellect was as valued a component of their relationship as sex. Lucille described how the Earl had an almost encyclopedic knowledge of Paris's history of sex work and would often take her on walking tours, highlighting the former locations of infamous bordellos and brothels, where he would wax poetic about famed courtesans of yore. Courtesan. Courtesans. The Earl told Lucille that she should be proud of her profession. He said, queens may have been the power on or behind the throne, but harlots have always been the superpower. He went on to tell her that with all this knowledge, she should share it with future clients and keep her chin up about what she does with her life. Lucille was charmed by the Earl. She told Michael Litchfield the following. He was a very tender and intelligent man, highly educated, and would never be violent, however drunk he was. He had enormous respect for women. He was very much a woman's man. Most people would wonder why he had to pay for sex, because many women would have given it to him freely, I imagine. He was so likable, so lovable. You had to know him really well and have earned his trust to appreciate why paying for sex was necessary for him. Something else you should be aware of, Tony loved this city, being Paris, and he loved France, but not as much as he loved his mother. He loved her much more than he did his wife, much more than anybody else in the world. It is impossible to emphasize that too much because it was responsible for his sexual behavior too. And this is where she hypothesized that this is why he paid for sex was because of this particular peccadillo. She said, I shall never forget the first occasion that we had sex. As I was undressing, he commented on my figure, as men often do, to release any tension and just for something to say. They think you need to be flattered and wooed. They forget it's not a date. Seduction doesn't come into it. As soon as money changes hands, the deal's done. The meter's running. Oh, my God. I know. Don't you love her? But usually they'll say something like, you have a fantastic figure and you know they're aroused. But it wasn't like that with Tony. He was already in bed with his covers pulled up to his neck and he followed me with his eyes and would suddenly say, you remind me of my mother. Oh, no. Let's bang. Although apparently my brother, the first night he was making out with one of his ex-girlfriends said, and he did not know why this was wrong at all. He said, wow, you smell just like my grandmother. And he's like, I meant her perfume. Like she has this nice powdery perfume. I was like, John, nobody ever wants to smell like anyone's grandmother. Ever. 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 Wow. Uh, yeah. I was like, don't do that again, ever. Another thing Lucille said that other women echoed was that the man somehow drank from the moment he woke up until bed without it ever seemingly affecting his kind and courteous demeanor. I mean, that's impressive. It is. He was just a jolly drunk, apparently. She said that the reason he drank so much was that he was introverted by nature, which we've talked about, and he really felt reliant on alcohol to bring him out of his shell. I guess he said to Lucille once, I'm even bored of myself when I'm sober. Yeah, I mean, depressed. He's depressed. He doesn't think he's fun without it. He's using it as a crutch. As such, he reportedly didn't even get out of bed until he had finished at least one glass of champagne, and then he would rise and drink the rest of the bottle with a cigarette. He famously remarked that if he wasn't drunk by noon, then he was having a very bad day indeed. After Paris and his love affair with Lucille, he decamped to the French Riviera, where he wooed a 29-year-old French model named Natalie Lyons. 
He was 63 at the time. So that's a 34-year age gap. The Earl became besotted with the gorgeous, energetic young woman and proposed marriage. Well, Natalie happily accepted, there was still a sticky wicket, which was that Tony was still married to the Countess. Yeah, that's small. That's small. Small detail. In his typical passive avoidant fashion, he had not bothered to divorce saintly Christina until he felt moved towards matrimony once more, which he did in his first marriage as well. In 2000, he officially divorced the mother of his children and immediately gave Natalie a big old diamond ring. Through their courtship, he also reportedly gave her over one million pounds, which would be about 1.6 million pounds in today's money, which translate roughly to 2 million United States dollars. He also gave her a 100,000 pound Rolex and an Audi TT sports car. Fancy. Those were all the rage in the early 2000s because Tom Cruise drove one in that Mission Impossible movie. Yeah, those were nice cars. They really were. However, despite this incredible generosity, the one thing that he did not end up giving her was his hand in marriage. The official word on why the Earl broke it off with the model was because he had discovered that she had posed nude for Penthouse previously and the British tabloids were having a field day posting and reprinting all of her nude pictorials. Okay, guys. Oh, man. So, okay, this is how crazy I am. I'm Googling because I really wanted to see pictures of Natalie Lyons. Of course. As I'm Googling around, I could not find any easy. She has an IMDb, but her like picture isn't featured on it because I think she only had some bit roles. So I'm trying to figure it out and an Amazon link comes up and it is advertising a vintage 1991 French penthouse magazine, the same one that features Natalie Lyons. Of course I bought it. (laughs) So I bought it this like a few days ago. It's supposed to be here by Monday to Wednesday. So I'm hoping that it comes in time for the Wednesday release for this episode. So I can even just take a picture of, you know, maybe her face, (laughs) block some of the, the nudie bits out. But I also think it's just a fun true crime piece to have in my collection. And I don't think my husband's going to mind having a 1991 penthouse around. A vintage penthouse? A vintage Francais. Maison du Pent. (laughs) So I'm really excited about that guy. Hopefully I'll have somebody show you on Instagram. Given the Earl's sex positivity and who he would go on to marry later, some people are skeptical of that explanation that he just dumped her because she posed for penthouse once. Yeah, no. It doesn't seem to add up with his attitude. So more people believe that he ended the engagement because someone else may have caught his eye. Obviously. While wrapping up things with his fiancée, I guess Tony became acquainted with a madame who ran the whole upscale sex work scene in Cannes where they did huge business because of there's the famous film festival there that's, I think, going on right now. There's also the advertising, the Cannes Lions we used to go to when we worked for that company in San Francisco. Not to mention all of the super yachts that are docked there with blisteringly wealthy people. So this is a good place to be if you are beautiful, intelligent, refined, gorgeous, and you want to make a little coin doing something on the side. 
So she ran this business and made hella dollars. This woman, we're going to call her Catherine. It's definitely Catherine. I think it's her real first name and I'm not sure about her last name, but we're going to call her Catherine. So she started working with Tony and she found the perfect woman for him. This was a stunning 41-year-old who went by the name Sarah. Now, Sarah's real name was Jamila Mumbarak. Jamila was known for her intoxicating charm and ability to seduce any man under the sun. At 41, she was looking for more than just a regular client. She was looking for a wealthy man to retire her from the business. So she was looking, she just kept talking to Catherine about like, I think I'm starting to get a little too old for this. Let's hook me up with somebody who might be interested in marriage and shut the whole thing down. The Earl, through his appreciation of women and almost teenage-like romanticism, seemed like just the ticket. And when they met, it was instant chemistry. Really? Yes. He was completely open to whatever Jamila wanted and... She knew how to work him. It was, there was something that they definitely had a thing that they got along with right at the beginning, that there was something between them, even though this ends tragically. Like I imagine Amber Heard and Johnny Depp must have had quite a spark at the beginning. Yeah. So did these two. And I think what Tony liked about Jamila is that she is very good looking. She's very exotic looking. She's half Tunisian, half Moroccan. Wow. Oh yeah. my God. Beautiful. She's really, really good looking. She's like a little wicked. There's this like seedy, slightly like dirty, like naughty quality to her. But at the same time, she could also dress up and be relatively proper. Okay. So she took him to all of like the seedy underside of Cannes that no one sees as a tourist because you only see like the beautiful Quasette and you only see these huge shots. And she's like, oh, I know where to go where we can get down and dirty and I can score a Coke for you. And basically give him the best time of his entire life. I can't believe he's like doing coke at like 61. Well, now he's, gosh, I think he's like pushing 65 and drinking daily. And this guy was in fairly good shape, all things considered. He was over six feet and I think he was like 180, 190 pounds. Like he did not look as bad as he should have given his proclivities. So he's going out, he's doing all this wild stuff with her, but she also knew how to emotionally play hard to get. Like, you know, there's only so much sexual hard to get you can have when you're being paid, obviously, but she managed to just constantly keep him guessing and wanting to know more about her. She seemed mysterious. Yeah. So she had him wrapped around her a little finger. I mean, you could say, oh, she played him like a fiddle. I mean, this is the Earl and this is Jamila. So I would say she played him like first chair violin at the Philharmonic he used to chair. Uh, Well, the couple met in early 2002. I think it was sometime in February. And by the spring, Jamila was already talking about marriage. And he was like, okay, I think we should do it too. All right. She, I'm trying to find the words to describe her. So it's kind of hard because she is stunning. There's no arguing that, but... There is like this Tawny Katane. Do you remember the beautiful like music video girl who was in all of like the hairband music videos in the 80s? I think she was in like Warren's video or something like writhing on like the hood of a convertible, like super sexy. Everyone was obsessed with her. Okay. 
she kind of had that strong energy, like the whack you in the face sexual energy. She had like a very, very tight body, big old fake boobies. Okay. Tanned to the max. And so this is where there's kind of a contradictory statement here. I think she's gorgeous. I mean, no one can deny she has a great body, but because she spent her entire life sunbathing on various wealthy men's yachts, her skin was a bit leathery. Okay. Like she looks both amazing and not so great for 41 as far as like the skincare stuff goes. There's like an element of a tan mom going on here. Okay. So who is this overly sun-kissed siren who is about to become the latest Countess of Shaftesbury? Let's find out right now. Jesse, do you know what that sound is? That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. You love Shopify. I do. I've spent the last 10 years running small businesses, and Shopify has been an essential part of the journey. Shopify gives entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for big businesses, so upstarts, startups, and established businesses alike can sell everywhere, synchronize online and in-person sales, and effortlessly stay informed. I have always been super impressed by how much Shopify simplifies some of the biggest challenges for small business owners and gives business owners from down the street to around the globe the tools they need to succeed. I tell you what, Jesse, every day is different as a business owner and there are new obstacles and challenges that we have to overcome and figure out solutions for and Shopify always has our back. With Shopify, you can reach customers online and across social networks with an ever-growing suite of channel integrations and apps, including Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, and more. You can synchronize your online and in-person sales and gain insights as you grow with detailed reporting of conversion rates, profit margins, and beyond. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. And for our listeners, we're thrilled to share that you can go to shopify.com slash lovemurder for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Grow your business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash lovemurder right now. That's shopify.com slash lovemurder. The very same year that Tony became the 10th Earl in 1961 was the year that Jamila Mambarak was born in Lens, Pas de Calais, France, to a Tunisian mother and a Moroccan father. Jamila was the second of seven children. Her father worked odd jobs, most regularly as a coal miner, but he did have alcoholism issues and often blew his pay on the drink. Ugh. That's It's really sad, especially with so many mouths to feed. The author also mentioned that their firstborn child died of mysterious circumstances, but no one ever investigated the death. Weird. So that's curious. And that was like a throwaway line in the book. And I was like, what? <laughs> so the mother moved the six surviving children back to her home country of Tunisia, where they apparently lived in a coastal area of Tunisia that's absolutely gorgeous. And it was there that Jamila really thrived as a child and a preteen. She was reportedly a quick learner who performed well in school and was described as bright, alert, and soon to be very beautiful. So it started to become clear that Jamila was going to be a stunner as early as her preteens. And she very quickly picked up on the fact that 
men, boys especially, were noticing everything about her, were watching her. And she realized that she had a currency that she could use with her face and with her body, with her mannerisms. And she decided that that was going to be her passport out of Tunisia and back to France. And specifically, she wanted to go to the French Riviera because she felt like that was the most glamorous place that she could imagine. A place of wealth and beauty. I mean, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous place. So she started using what her mama gave her real, real, real early. And unbeknownst to that same mother, Jamila allegedly began participating in sex work as early as 16 years old. And her first clients were wealthy married Arab men who were vacationing in the area that she grew up in. She soon saved up enough money to move to Saint-Tropez in 1978 at only 17 years old. She attempted at that point to become a model. She was always interested in modeling and acting. I don't think she ever got really enough work to sustain her in that regard. She does later on go on to pose for Playboy a little bit, but it was mostly nude modeling. There was like this very weird scene described in the book of her being asked to pose nude by these photographers when she first moved to Saint-Tropez and she does and they just keep pushing the envelope and then they're like, okay, what if we have you lay down and put like ice cream on your nipples and let a dog lick them off? And she's like, not unless you pay me this amount. And they're like, yeah, we'll pay you that amount. But then like, then they had to get a dog and they get this woman to come over with a dog, but the dog won't lick the ice cream. And she's, it's like a whole scene. It did not sound like high-end modeling here. No. Just say no to dogs licking your nipples too. I was going to say, that sounds like some fetish shit. That doesn't sound like a modeling gag. That sounds like a very specific thing that I'm not sure who would find attractive, but apparently this was their great idea. In any case, no dogs were injured in the shooting of that (laughs) fetish, whatever it was, because the dog reportedly did not take the bait. So she wasn't really getting many gigs. And this is when she kind of went back to some high-end escort work. And in that capacity, she actually met a man that she went on to marry. He was a Dutch businessman. So they got married and they had two children relatively quickly. In fact, I think that they got married because she was pregnant. And by the time the marriage was only three years old, both of them had had it. It was terrible for both parties. And she ended up divorcing her husband and essentially abandoning her children because she at that point wanted to focus on trying to make it seriously as an actress and she wanted to move to Paris. And she ended up relinquishing custody of her children to her soon-to-be ex-husband's mother who also lived in the south of France. And by the author, Michael Litchfield's account, however, the mother, the grandmother of those kids who took care of them was wonderful. Oh, great. Yes. They actually had a very happy childhood. They were emotionally taken care of. They were 100% raised very well by their grandmother. And the, the only sadness was that their mother almost never saw them or would stop by in almost a political show, like bring them presents, gush, talk to them and be like, oh, I'm going to start doing this all the time. And then, you know, wouldn't come back for another nine months. 
So that obviously that takes an emotional toll, but other than that, it wasn't like they were put into the system or anything. They had a, a loving, caring family member who who helped raise them. After leaving her husband and children, Jamila did try her hand at acting, but failed to make it big, small, medium. She failed to make it, let's just say, in the city of light. Thusly, she went back to French Riviera, specifically Cannes, where she met Catherine's acquaintance, the madame that eventually introduces them. And she started working for Catherine and making some really big bucks. So prior to hooking up with the Earl, she was, I think, one of the top girls. She was making, like around year 2000, she was making something like 10,000 pounds a night. That was her going rate. That's what she was quoting people, at least. Oh, my God. So that has to be pushing like 20,000 American dollars in today's money. And she later said under oath that some of her clients included George Clooney, Bruce Willis, and Prince Albert of Monaco. Okay. All of these men categorically denied that that was even remotely true and that nor had they ever even met this woman in passing. I mean, Clooney, sign me up. I would have taken a Willis too. He's, I told you I saw him that one day in the Liberty in Boston and he was so cool. I was talking on the phone in the lobby and he walks by, catches my eye, gives me a wink without breaking stride and keeps walking and doesn't look back once. So much swag. So much swag. I know. He's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So they said no, but I was thinking it was really interesting if she had bagged Prince Albert because Prince Albert is the son of Princess Grace. So yeah, that's some weird Eskimo square math over there. Square dancing, (laughs) sexual square dancing between mother, son, married couple. Bow to your partner into your corner. Give a big smile to the rest of the square. We're gonna have some sex in. I can't think of anything else to go off that. Wow. Wow. That was really something. So yes, she was a top earner. But, you know, she was getting up there in the years. So when she met the Earl, it was certainly right place, right time. So after a few weeks of courtship, the Earl was getting pretty serious about Jamila and he brought her to London so that he could arrange a meeting with his youngest son, Nicholas, who was now 23. And like I said, a successful DJ and entrepreneur in New York City. From the moment that Nicholas met the avaricious Jamila, he knew that she was trouble. He said, instantaneously, I saw her as someone who was out to get everything she possibly could. Jamila had the brass balls to start listing all of the items and possessions of the estate that she wanted to be moved to France and into her home with the Earl. Now, these are priceless pieces of artwork and artifacts that had been in the family since the 1600s, 1700s. And Nicholas told her straight up that she wasn't getting shit. He said everything that's encapsulated in that estate that's part of the Shaftesbury history belongs to the estate and the heirs of the estate. So no. Not my 17th wife. Yeah, yeah, you cannot. You've been dating my dad for two months. You cannot have all of our expensive historical artifacts. No, thank you. No, thank you. 
And then apparently she got real salty with him and said, oh, do you just want to keep it all for yourself? That's what yes. you're going to do? Yes. And it- <laughs> we. <Yeah. laughs> we, our lineage, we're going to keep it in the family. Thanks. So at that point, they kind of got into a fight and Nicholas just got up and walked out. He was like, "I, there's no engaging with you. You're not getting anything. So good luck. Nice meeting you or not. It could not have been more crystal clear to him at that point what Jamila was really after, and it sure as hell wasn't his father's tender heart. So this horrible meeting must have kind of affected the Earl's enthusiasm because he had gone from very seriously talking about marriage with Jamila to after this kind of cooling his heels a little bit and saying, well, maybe we need some time. We're still getting to know each other. Nothing needs to change. I'd say a few red flags. A few red flags. So a couple years later after this, he would say to a friend that at this point, there was something stopping him. There was something internal, instinctual that said, this is a bad idea. Don't go along with this one. He would later say that he felt like something wasn't quite right, but he could not put a finger on what it was. But despite that, not being able to identify what exactly was wrong, he smelled a rat, but he didn't listen to his gut. And I mean, Jamila kind of forced his hand in a way too, because she started to notice his lack of enthusiasm and realized that her big old fish was wriggling off the hook. So she pulled a page from Trap a Man 101 and happily announced to the shocked Earl over dinner that she was expecting their child. How old is she at this time? 41. Oh, she's still 41. Okay. Mm -hmm. This was only months after they met. So she was 41 when they met. She's still 41 only a couple months later. Yeah. Yeah. So... Tony immediately believed it. He did not question this for a second. He believed it. He was kind of excited. Right away, he wanted her to know that their child was going to have every opportunity in the world that this child be treated just like his other children and that he was really excited to give this unborn baby the best of the best. She would have the best maternity wing. She would have anything she wanted to help her through the pregnancy and... He also even said, well, if it's a boy, he has to go to Eton, like immediately. And if it's a girl, then maybe she'll go to this Swiss boarding school and they're chatting. And then he said, oh, and of course, we have to get married because our child needs us to be fully wed and it's only proper. And, you know, I want my baby to be born to a fully fledged countess. So she got exactly what she wanted. The couple was married in the Netherlands in a low-key ceremony on November 5th, 2002, just about nine months since they had met. None of Tony's family attended the small gathering. Some friends noted the interesting hypocrisy in not marrying Natalie because of the penthouse pictorial when the new countess had once modeled for Playboy. Speaking of the new countess, Jamila was aggressive about flaunting her new place in the peerage and began to demand, now this is in France too, everywhere she went, began to demand that people refer to her only as the countess and curtsy to her. Oh. She even 
made her Madam Catherine curtsy to her. No, she did not. Yeah. And Catherine's like, are you kidding me? I made you. Like, I know who you are. I know all your dirty secrets. You're going to make me fucking curtsy to you. So she said in the book, it was absurd. She was drunk on imagined power and wealth. She was no lady and she never would be. She couldn't handle it. Get it, madam. Yeah. And also that madam did say that a lot of the women that worked for her at one point did go on to marry celebrities. Yeah, isn't that the aristocrats? Goal, like, yeah, that's the goal. And so yeah. she said she would die because she'd go through like the pages of like Vogue or Tatler or something like that. And she'd be like, oh, there's one of my girls. There's another one of my girls. So it's not like she said none of her girls could ascend to ladyship or whatever. It was just not Jamila. She was not the right woman for this position. Well, obviously, because the second that she gets any ounce of power, she's asking people who helped her pave her way to curtsy to her. To bow down to her. After the shotgun wedding, Jamila lobbied immediately for greater financial protection in case something happened to her husband. So she basically said to him, I'm carrying your baby and I'm your wife now, but I don't have anything that's in my name. You haven't put me in your will yet. I'm concerned about my future because I think your kids will try to take everything away from me and our children. Yeah. So he was like, okay, let's figure this out. Now she wanted to like inherit the estate, which he was like, no, there's no shot of that. That is going to my heir, Anthony, and everything within it. However, I'm going to start by buying you your own beautiful can place that is in your name. It's yours forever, no matter what. And this was half a million British pounds So I feel like that has to be more like a million dollars United States today. What do you think? Probably. So it was a really, really nice place. So he got her that place. He also gave her a full staff that he paid. So she had a maid, a chef, a driver, like the whole nine yards to help take care of her. He also gave her totally in her name, another home in the Southwest of France, an expensive SUV and an 8,000 pound monthly budget, which is like 10,000 pounds in today's money and about 12,500 in American dollars today. Furthermore, in his will, he stipulated that Jamila would receive four million pounds upon his death, which is more like 6.5 today and 8 million in U.S. dollars. And she would also inherit his villa in Nice, his apartment in Versailles and its contents, which included priceless historical artifacts and antique furniture that was worth a small fortune. Wow. Ungrateful to the last, Jamila insisted on a visit to the saintly St. Giles home that she was now technically the lady of and was shocked when she saw that the place was in desperate need of serious repairs. She was further miffed when the Earl's son, Anthony, who was basically the acting Earl at this point, would not allow her to strip the home of all of its valuable possessions. And then she was absolutely irate when the villagers were not like genuflecting and bowing and scraping and curtsying to her. Okay. She's like, well, I'm their countess. 
And they're like, the old countess used to like garden with us and be like, hey, what's up, Chuck? You know, like she's a cool, chill woman. Like you're, this is not, we're not in the feudal system where I have to like bow down and not meet your eyes here. I'm not a surf lady. So she was like pissed because nobody was like taking her seriously in France, obviously. And then she thought like, well, when I'm the lady on the estate, everyone's going to be like, oh, my countess. Oh, this. And they're like, get the hell out of here. We know you're trash. We can see you from a mile away. So yeah, upon the return to Cannes, her household staff reported terrible fights with Jamila, hurling abuse at the Earl and him doing absolutely nothing. I mean, I think probably a part of being mostly drunk all the time too is that you can just be like, I'm not going to respond to this because they said that she would fly at him. She would scream things. She would like say the most terrible things to him. And he was always just like, oh, let's calm down. Like he just never responded in kind. Upon their return from England, she reportedly mocked him, said that he was not a proper aristocrat, that his sons were ill-bred, and that his ancestral home was a rotting dump. Oh, wow, girl. Oof. So this new marriage went to hell in a handbasket as quickly as it came together. This part really sent me pretty soon after their marriage, I think it was only a handful of months, the countess the new countess, contacted Catherine the madam saying that she wanted to get back to work. Catherine was like, oh, I thought the whole point of this is to bag yourself a royal and get the hell out of the business. But hey, if you want to come back, I can't say no to a bona fide British countess that I can rent out because I can charge way more for you now. Yeah. But she did say, please don't use my name. I don't want this to get back to Tony. And then hilariously, some weeks after that, Tony contacted Catherine and said, yeah, things aren't exactly perfect in my marriage. I might need a companion. And so Catherine is going, what the heck in the messy hell is going on with these two? But whatever. The only thing is it made her job more difficult because she said I had to make sure that the countess and the earl didn't accidentally be set up on a date together. Yeah, that's messy. This is like a very body Shakespearean comedy at this point with all of these hijinks and runaround and people putting on airs. In can. <laughs> In can. I know. it's it, This would have been a great, I mean, it's definitely a tragic comedy because here we go. The final straw came for the relationship when the Earl confronted Jamila about her lack of a pregnant belly at the yeah. time that she should have been seven months along. The old fake pregnancy is a hard con to successfully pull off in the long run. It's impossible, babe. It's impossible. Eventually, you have to produce a child. I mean, I was thinking, like, how is she going to fake even losing it? Like, Dan went to every single doctor's appointment with me. Like, her back was against a wall. And this reckoning occurred at Jamila's can apartment and was witnessed by her staff. So this is how we know what happened. Her staff was in the vicinity and they heard everything going on, which is another thing about people like this. They treat their staff like they're not there. Like they act and fight and drink and do all this stuff in front of other human beings because they're such fucking asshats that they don't see those people as people. No, they don't respect them. Of course, the staff was only too happy to discuss this later to the police. But yeah, so apparently when this happened, the Earl went in as gently and as quietly as possible. And he said in a very calm manner that 
he didn't want to get into a fight. However, he now knew that there was no pregnancy and that he was aware that she had lied to him in order to push him into marriage. Excuse and me, Jesse. In order to what? Push him into marriage? No, in order to what? Oh, to secure the bag. <laughs> so anyways, yeah, she lied to him to secure that bag and he felt duped and he was just trying to express his feelings about it. Which I feel like is kind of rare for him because normally he would just run away. Exactly. And honestly, I wish he had because this did not go well for him or anyone involved in the situation. So she flew into a rage and she started screaming at him for calling her a liar and saying she wasn't a liar. She had really been pregnant, but he was right. She was no longer pregnant. And he's like, well, you were never pregnant. And she goes, oh, yes, it was, but I had an abortion. And he was like, well, why would you do that? Why would you have an abortion when we're married? You have all of the money and resources in the world to take care of that child. And even if you didn't love me anymore, you would be taken care of forever for having one of my children. So he's like, there's just no motivation for you to have an abortion. So I don't believe that you did. I just believe that you're saying that now. And she's like, oh, really? No motivation? And she just got right in his face. And she started screaming that her motivation was that Tony was a sex-mad pervert who was hooked on drugs and booze. And she said, what kind of father would you make apart from a lousy one? What kind of example would you be to a child? And like, she was just saying every mean thing she could possibly think to him as to why she would have gotten an abortion. And the ironic thing is that her staff later said she's like going in on him, like how he's so gross and he's a druggie and he's drinking and all this stuff. They said directly before he arrived, she had drank an entire bottle of champagne by herself while doing coke. Um, a whole bottle of champagne by yourself is like a big feat. That's like a lot of bubbles. I could do it back in the day when I was oh. in my 20s and doing bottomless mimosas. I Come could on, not. you could. You couldn't? I don't think so. I think mixed with the OJ over like a three-hour brunch maybe. But yes, like just yes. sitting there drinking a whole bottle of champagne and doing Coke. That seems like that science project when you put like vinegar in the volcano. <laughs> <laughs> That's all that reminds me of. That'd be a disaster. Yeah, or like Pop Rocks and Coke. Yeah, no, that seems like a disaster. But that's so ironic that she's laying into him about this behavior that she completely set up. I mean, he was already doing it, but like she was like at the beginning of the relationship, finding him coke and taking him to all these places. She's doing it herself and then she's throwing it back in his face. So clearly the situation was deteriorating and reportedly the Earl said extremely calmly, you've made a fool out of me. And he just oh, turned and walked out. No. So he did not go back to the apartment he bought her in Cannes at that point. He returned to his villa in Nice. And I don't think he made any moves for about the next six months, in which time Jamila realized that she had maybe effed up a little bit. And she started trying to text him, to call him, to try to woo him back. But he was not having it at that point. He knew it was pretty much donezo. So I think six months or so after this confrontation, it was April of 2004 that he called her and he said, 
I don't want to hear from you anymore. We are officially separated and I'm going to be moving towards divorce. And I just wanted to let you know. At this point, when he told her this, they had only been married for a year and a half. So the last thing she said to him over the phone was, you'll be sorry. You'll be very sorry if you go through this. And that turned out to be not an idle threat. So as was his habit, the Earl had not begun his divorce proceedings until there was another woman in the picture. Earlier in the very same month that he had dropped the divorce bomb on Jamila, April 2004, he had met and fallen in love with a 33-year-old single mother with two children named Nadia. Nadia was also Moroccan and living in the south of France. And I believe she worked in the same milieu as his other girlfriends around this time. Michael Litchfield wrote, Here again was a classic example of the Earl's repetitive impulsiveness. He dived into the deep end of relationships with the immaturity of a schoolboy with a crush on a girl in the same class. Yeah. Because he immediately wanted to marry Nadia as well. Yeah. I mean, it kind of goes to what you were saying, though, about when he was cheating on his wife, he was having this girlfriend experience. Yeah. I think also like when like, I don't feel like this is so obscure for like older wealthy guys. To want to be loved. Yeah. Like, and want to like be like whisked away into like romance in their older age, especially with his like mommy issues too. Yeah. I do also think when you get a little up there in years, you start thinking about who is going to be holding my hand at the end? Who's going to be with me? Who am I going to ride out my twilight years with? 100%. But he was picking the wrong ladies. Yeah, I know. And not the best judgment. However, I don't know. I think actually Nadia might have been that person. I really do think that she might have cared for him no matter what because she was the first person to put her foot down about his drinking. Which was important at this stage in his life. (laughs) Exactly. She says all of these like wonderful things about him. She was also interviewed by author Michael Litchfield. She really connected with him deeply. And the only thing that scared her about building a life with him was his drinking problem. And unlike it seems like a lot of these other women who would be very happy just to keep him drunk and happy. She was trying to do a hard thing that he didn't like and she didn't like because nobody wants to tell somebody to put the booze down that they can't call you if they're not sober. You know, it's a very difficult situation to be in. And she did it all the time. She would tell him he had to be relatively sober if he was going to be engaging with her at all. So awesome. Yeah. So I do think that this relationship certainly would have gone somewhere. She said that they talked about marriage. He did not want to officially propose to her until he had settled things with Jamila. So that was important for her. But he was going full gung-ho with this woman forever, Nadia. Meanwhile, Jamila had other plans. When her seductive phone calls and texts to woo her husband back had failed, she decided to protect her stake by arranging his death before she was no longer a countess. I mean, predictable. Predictable, but so sad. Desperately sad. Because he also, I do think, was on the precipice of the type of relationship he had been looking for this whole time. 
In October of 2004, police would later uncover a flurry of phone calls between Jamila and her brother Mohammed, who was apparently like a grifter, a drug dealer, a general just criminal as well. He lived in Germany. That same month, the Earl proposed that he and Nadia take a 10-day vacation to Antibes, leading Nadia to believe that maybe he had settled things with Jamila and maybe this was his proposal vacation. However, when the Earl flew into the Nice airport on November 3rd in preparation for their trip, he called her and said, I've landed. And I think she was supposed to come meet him at the airport so they could take off or pick him up. I'm not sure exactly what, but when he landed, he was noticeably drunk. And when he was speaking to Nadia on the phone saying, you know, come here, let's get going. She could tell he was slurring his words. So she said, I'm not having this. I told you I'm not going to do this if you're drinking to excess. So I'm not going to go. I will not see you until you've sobered up and hopefully we can salvage this holiday. And so she hung up on him. She was pissed. And later she said that she doesn't know if that was the right call. She doesn't know in hindsight if it was the right decision. But like she's probably thinking that because of his fate, like of what happened. Yeah. Yeah. But like if that was what her boundaries were for to have a relationship, then I don't think that there's anything wrong with sticking to your guns. She said that she knew how much he loved her and she thought that she had the power to make him healthier by denying him access to the person he claimed to love. And that's what she thought that that would be such a motivating factor for him to get healthy and ultimately help him and them as a couple because she's 30-something years younger than him. And if she did truly love him, you would imagine that she would want a nice long life or as long a life as possible. So she said no. And then she refused to take his next several calls while he drunkenly tried to reach back out to her. And when he finally realized that she wasn't being serious, she was not going to see him and the, the holiday was off, he said, fuck it, I'll just go into can and get wasted. So he went into Cannes, he got drunk, he ended up going to all of his old haunts. And then I think it was like in the middle of the night, he reached out to this fortune teller that he had worked with in the past. And she's like, it's the middle of the night, I'm not coming to read your fortune. And he's like, I'll pay you triple. He ended up paying between, I guess, his taxi and her rate, like something like 400 euros to get his fortune read by this one particular woman. Well, 400 euros is a lot. I mean, it's probably a lot in, this was in 2004. So it's probably a lot more now. And so he ends up having a brief experience with his fortune teller. And she said that he was drunk, but he was not out of control or seemed blackout or, you know, was falling over or anything. You could just tell he was toasty, which was his habit. Unless you knew him very well, for the most part, he could pull off being fairly intoxicated. And she said all he wanted to know about was Nadia. All he wanted to know was, is she going to get pregnant? Is she already pregnant? Is she going to give me a daughter? And that's all he wanted to talk about was his relationship and his future with Nadia. And the fortune teller said, I am sorry. I can't see anything past your current marriage. And he was like, well, that's over. That's done. I'm basically done. I'm done with her. It's divorce. So there has to be the next thing. So tell me about what's going to happen with my future with Nadia. And she's like, I'm just sorry. It's just like, it's black. I don't know what to tell you. There's nothing beyond Jamila. You need to resolve 
your marriage because there's like a psychic block here. I can't tell you what's happening past Jamila. You have to figure out things with Jamila. So she's a real psychic. (laughs) Yeah. And so she was like, he was at that point started offering her money. He's taking out bills and notes and he's like, just tell me something positive. Tell me something about Nadia. And he's trying to give her more money. And she's like, dude, I can't can't change what I see in the future because you're giving me money. Like you cannot bribe fate. It's going to be what it's going to be. And only you can resolve it. So resolve things with Jamila. And so she said he left very disappointed, very morose. But there was nothing she could do. She said, I'm not going to flatter somebody or tell them something that's not the truth just because they don't like what I see. So the next day he sobered up and he called Nadia, who spoke to him because he was now sober, that while he was in Cannes, if they were not going to go away at this point, he was going to end things with Jamila once and for all. He was going to arrange a meeting for her, work out a settlement, figure out what she wanted, give her what she wanted and make it over. And maybe this was also because he was inspired by the fortune teller. Nadia, of course, worried about him being around Jamila because she was so conniving, but she was really happy that he seemed like he was taking charge of something. He was taking charge of it. He was finding resolution and he was moving on in a way so he could be with her. So she encouraged him ultimately to have this lunch with Jamila. So he set up a lunch in a restaurant and Jamila never showed. So he reached out to her after and she finally called him back and she said, well, actually tomorrow is what would have been our second wedding anniversary. And I'm really upset to be honest. And I really miss you. And this whole thing has been such a disaster, but I do understand that we are not a healthy couple and we have to end things. I just also didn't really want to talk about sensitive details of our divorce in a crowded restaurant. Like that stopped her before. Yeah. She's like, I just don't think it's a good idea. So she's like, here's what I propose. Why don't you come over tomorrow on what would have been our anniversary? And we can be totally civilized about this. We'll have some champagne. We'll reminisce about old times. And then we'll just put this whole thing to bed. And he apparently very reluctantly agreed. He did talk to Nadia about this, about how she had blown him off. So he's like, I think I should just go over there and try to finish it even though he didn't really want to see her and he didn't want to be alone in her territory. So that's what he did. On November 5th, the Earl was seen greeting Jamila with a polite kiss on each cheek, as the French do, at her door and then entering. After that moment that he crossed the threshold, the passive, romantic, and deeply troubled Earl was never heard from again. Who saw him? They caught some security footage. Nadia was the first person to become alarmed when she couldn't reach her boyfriend. Panicked, she called Tony's niece-based attorney who advised her, this was typical of Tony, he just took off, he went off the radar every once in a while. Do not worry. He loves you. I know he loves you. He's probably just needs to take a break. Maybe it was very stressful dealing with Jamila and he just needed to get away. Don't worry about it. So she's, of course, worrying about it. Ten days go by. She hasn't heard anything from him. His attorney hasn't heard anything from him. At that point, the attorney said, okay, we got to go to the police. So his attorney and Nadia go to the police and they file a missing persons report. Initially, The police are looking at this and they're like, okay, he's an English earl. 
He has residences all over the world. Let's look into if he flew out of here. Did he fly private? Did he fly commercial? Let's look everywhere on all of the manifests and see if he flew somewhere. So he did not. There was no record of him going. There was no record of his passport being used. It didn't seem like he went anywhere. So then they're like, okay, he's also, I think, 66 years old at this point. He has a troubling history with drugs and alcohol. He might not be in the best shape. So there's a good chance he maybe had a heart attack. He had something happen to him. Maybe he, somebody doesn't know who he is. He's in a hospital. He didn't have ID on him. So they check all the hospitals. There's not only nobody that has his name, but there's nobody who fits his description at all, really. So that's out. Then they check his bank and cell phone records. Everything stopped on November 5th. He had no activity on his cell phone after that date, and he has not used any of his credit cards. So now they're actually worried. We have exhausted all of the potentially natural causes for a disappearance, and it appears that there may be foul play in action here. So naturally, they trace back the steps of where he was. And the last known location of the Earl was at his soon-to-be ex-wife's house. So they go to Jamila and she admitted that she had entertained the Earl at her home. She said that they were attempting to work out a settlement for their divorce. She did say that they weren't really getting along, that this conversation did not go very well. He came in and told her right away that he was going to be taking away her allowance. So that, you know, $12,500 a month in today's United States money, he's not paying that anymore. So he said, you know, you can keep your apartment. I'm not paying you an allowance anymore. That's going right away. And she was saying that she deserved 50% of his estate. And he apparently laughed in her face. And So she's saying it just wasn't great. He wasn't getting what he wanted. I wasn't getting what I wanted. I was really pissed about him taking me off my allowance. And we got a little heightened, but we decided that there was no way we could work it out and that we were going to only communicate through our lawyers going forward. And then she said, but we ended just fine. Like he gave me a kiss on the cheek and he took off and we just decided we were just going to go through our lawyers. So even though it was not a great conversation, in the end, I think we're okay. And I don't know where he went. And they said, well, do you have any ideas? And at that point, she kind of tried to throw the attention towards Nadia. And oh, she was like, my God. well, he has this new girlfriend and I don't know what her history is. And I, I think she might have something to do with it. You should definitely look into her. And the police at this point were keeping everybody open. So Nadia was still a person of interest as the current significant other of the missing person. But it just seemed very unlikely that Nadia really had something to do with this. The number one thing being that she had nothing to gain from his death. He did want to marry her. His attorney told the police that he was preparing all of the divorce stuff specifically so he would be free to marry Nadia. She doesn't get anything if he dies before he's divorced and marries her. Nothing. So she has no motivation for this man to be dead. Very much the opposite. And she was the one who was desperately trying to get somebody to look into his disappearance. Yeah. Someone who is responsible for that doesn't doesn't do the crime. That's not like the random person walking by the investigation scene. That's like... That would literally be calling the kettle black. Exactly. And 
On the counterpoint, Jamila had every reason to want him dead before he divorced her. So they are technically keeping both Nadia and Jamila as people of interest, but it's clear pretty much that it wasn't Nadia. The only other person who stood to benefit from the Earl's death would have been Anthony, his heir, but he was quickly ruled out. There was just no way he was involved. And he also flew from England to France so he could aid in the investigation which was, this is a very difficult time for their family because at first they're like, we know he pulls these disappearing acts and he's probably just on a bender somewhere. And then every day that went on and every new piece of evidence made them sink deeper and deeper and deeper into the reality that this was the cat that didn't have nine lives, that maybe had had nine lives and this was the 10th. That, yeah, you know, it almost seemed like he had gotten himself in so much trouble before, but he'd always survived that... You just kept thinking he was going to do it. And all of a sudden now he's gone. So this was a very, very stressful time for Anthony right now. And basically the Shafesburys, who are technically their family name is Ashley Cooper, but I think people use Shafesburys and Ashley Coopers interchangeably. They were pretty sure that Jamila had something to do with it. And a lot of people were pointing the finger at Jamila, including her own staff. Her own staff were turning up to the police, being like she was abusive towards him. Let me tell you a bunch of shit about their relationship. So they were turning on her too. So a lot of the focus now obviously goes to Jamila. And she starts telling different stories now about what happened. And it's changing. And she's trying to put the attention anywhere else. She's like, oh, you know what? I failed to mention that the other day I came into my apartment and he was here and he was here with these like Arab men. And I think he's involved in some sort of underworld thing with these like Arab men. Yeah. She's saying that. She's saying, I think he was involved with maybe some drug dealers. So she's trying to say all this stuff. And then she's like, oh, you know what? Maybe he got kidnapped. Did you guys look into that? Did he get kidnapped? Totally, totally. Totally. Which didn't make any sense either because if you have a guy who's worth millions and millions and millions of pounds, you would ask for a ransom. There was no ransom requested anywhere. In a later interview, she's like, well, you know, he did a lot of cocaine, so maybe he's just died of a heart attack and he's laying around somewhere. And then I think the most appalling suggestion was one she made both to the police and to the press in which she suggested that he had become such an embarrassment to the Shaftesbury's that they had kidnapped him themselves, that they had ambushed him, put him on a private jet, and he was back somewhere in England in a safe house drying out so he would no longer be an embarrassment to the family. She said to the press, you know, aristocrats will do anything to safeguard their status and their money. That's why in France, we guillotined them all. She really missed her calling to be like a screenwriter in Hollywood, you know? All of these ludicrous suggestions. So under immense scrutiny, Jamila resorted to what I'd like to think was like plan B or C or D or something. I don't think this was her first plan, but she is under the heat right now. So she faked a mental breakdown in February of 2005 and was admitted to a psychiatric hospital. While hospitalized, she confessed that she had actually witnessed her brother, Mohammed, get into a fight with her soon-to-be-estranged 
husband. And she said, I didn't tell you he was there. I was trying to protect him. He was smoking pot in my bedroom. When the Earl showed up, I shut the bedroom door. I tried to have a conversation with the Earl. It got angry. The Earl became abusive towards me. And then my brother came out to essentially save me, defend me. They had words at that point. My brother didn't do anything to the Earl until the Earl attacked him. And then my brother responded in self-defense. It was too emotional for me. I left. When I returned, the Earl was dead on the ground. The Earl's dead now. The Earl is dead and apparently of a heart attack. That's what she said. She said they got into a fight. They got into some fisticuffs. And her brother told her that he clutched his heart and fell down at some point, probably from the fight. So she said it was an accident. Nobody had this planned. We felt so horrible. But I thought no one is going to believe me. We're getting divorced. He's aristocracy. This is all going to go the wrong way against me. So when my brother suggested that we just hide the body, I went along with it. That's what she says. So she said that Muhammad did try CPR. It didn't work. And after that, she did help him get the Earl's body in his car. But then after that, she didn't know what happened. She didn't know what happened to the Earl's body. and She could not lead them to where it was. Okay. But this is a ludicrous story because it involves the Earl getting aggressive and confrontational multiple times in this story. And every single person that who had ever met this human being said he was so non-confrontational that it was almost to his detriment. So this is an absurd tale all around. So she really did put on a good show, though. She was crying. She was saying she felt regret and she was guilty because she was like, my brother's a dangerous person. I should not have allowed my husband to come over while my brother was there. I wish that I could have done something else. There was nothing I could have done. I mean, who was to know that that was going to happen? Cry, cry, cry. Well, I guess hindsight is twenty twenty. So can I go? Wow. I mean, we knew she was audacious, but that's, yeah, that's really expecting a lot. Yeah, no, we're arresting you immediately and we're going to hunt your brother down in Germany and arrest his ass too, which they did. So the problem is here that they do not have a body. Jamila's brother isn't talking. He's not saying shit about what happened or where the body is. All they have is this story of Jamila's. And that's not going to be enough to prosecute both of them. So they start going through all of the recorded phone calls to see if they can pick up on anything. Because remember, they were tapping her phone. See if there's anything that they can use now that they know kind of the story and they know that her brother's involved. So they found one really big piece of evidence. It's a phone call that Jamila was having with her sister And in it, she was complaining about Muhammad. She was saying that she had already paid him 150,000 euros in blood money for his participation and silence. Now she complained, though, because he knew what had happened and he was threatening to expose her every time he wanted more money. He was saying, I know you have it. I know what he gave you. 
I know what's coming to you in his will. So give me more money or I'm going to say something. So she was frustrated that he was extorting her. And she said that he was untrustworthy and she had to do something to get him back. So she was going to, quote, fix that greedy leech. And then she told in detail her sister what her plan was to set him up entirely for the murder. Oh, my God. She's nasty. Diabolical. So she planned to pretend like she was going to try to protect him and then little by little tell them the real story, which is that Muhammad attacked her husband and killed him and, and that she was forced to go along with it. And then she told her sister on the phone that she did know where the Earl was and that she planned on telling the police, look, I don't really know where the the body is, but I do know where Mohammed likes to go walking, where his normal haunts are, where he likes to go for rural rambles. So I can bring you on some of these spots and maybe we can find something. And she planned to like do that and subtly lead them to the body, which she said the body would prove that he had injured the Earl fatally. Of course. So that recording was enough to prove that the Earl had absolutely been murdered. This was clearly not a mistake. And that Jamila was just as complicit as Muhammad, if not more, for being the ringleader of this. Yep. So the Earl had gone to the apartment that he had purchased outright for this conniving wench. And then she and her brother had murdered him in cold blood. Yep. Sounds right. And then she tries to throw her partner in crime and blood brother under the bus. Literally. Yeah. (laughs) (sighs) Well, now that they knew that Jamila was aware of where the body was, they used the GPS on her mobile phone to see if she'd been out anywhere in the vicinity of where somebody could dispose of a body anytime around the murder. Well, two days before the murder, Jamila's phone had been in relative wilderness a few miles outside of Cannes. Her movements suggested that she had kind of circled around this one area quite a few times. They believed that it was, it looked like she was looking for a place to dispose of a body. Okay. Yes. So that's what they believe she had been doing these two days before. And so they went out to that location because she was not participating. She refused to speak even when they told her that they knew she knew, like they they were like, we know everything because we listened to your conversation with your sister and she still refused to speak. And so did Muhammad. So they use these GPS coordinates. They go out on the second day of the search. They found the 10th Earl of Shaftesbury at the base of the French Alps. No way. And unfortunately, he had been out there for a while and he had been absolutely ripped apart by scavengers. Oh, my God. That's horrible. It was so bad that Anthony was unable to even identify his father's body at all. And they had to confirm that it was indeed the Earl through a DNA test. Oh, my goodness. Yes. 
So despite the absolutely terrible condition of the body, the coroner was able to ascertain that the Earl's neck had been broken. Technically, it was a double fracture of the larynx, which indicated intense strangulation. Whoa, that is intense. Very, very intense. They said he had also suffered a broken ankle. And I'm sure there was a lot of soft tissue injuries that were no longer apparent. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's pretty clear what the cause of death was here. And it wasn't a heart attack. Jamila did try to change her story to say, oh, I was just covering for my brother. Oh, he did attack the Earl in a drunken rage. And I didn't know exactly what happened because I was so horrified I left the room and it was just too horrible to talk about. I blacked it out. So... Yeah, yep, my brother did physically attack him. And I guess he must have done something to him if you're telling me that that was what happened. But I wouldn't know because I wasn't there and I don't even like to think about such a thing. So no one was buying anything she was saying. And the siblings sat in jail until their trial in 2007. They were completely denied bail because they had connections in Morocco and Tunisia all over the world. They're like, you're not getting out. You're not going anywhere because we don't trust y'all. Meanwhile, son Anthony had officially become the 11th Earl of Shaftesbury and was attempting to deal with his grief, his new title, and his new responsibilities. He took a trip to New York around this time, and it was mostly just to hang out with his brother and get away from everything that they were going through. Yeah. Anthony and Nicholas were very close. They looked very similar. People thought they were twins not even just in their looks, but also in their actions with each other because they connected so well, it seemed almost like they were twins. And also at this point, I think their step-siblings were living in New York or at least their stepsister. So this was like a mini family reunion. So he's in New York, he's having a good time. They're bonding and connecting in the wake of all this grief when out of the blue, shockingly, Anthony has a heart attack and dies. What? How old is he? He was 27 years old. What? And he had just become the 11th Earl. Wait, that is devastating. I mean, Nicholas was beside himself. This was still ongoing. I mean, the murder investigation is still ongoing. They're preparing for trial now. The people that killed his father have not been brought to justice. And now his brother, his beloved older brother, is gone, shockingly, at an unbelievably young age. And not only all of that, he has to uh, completely abandon the life that he built in New York City to go back home because he is now going to be the 12th Earl of Shaftesbury, and it's his responsibility. (sighs) It's more than I can even imagine. People started comparing the Shaftesburys to the Kennedys as far as there being a curse on this family because of everything that was going on. And it certainly didn't help these rumors when years later, Nicholas was thrown from his horse and broke his spine. Oh my God. He survived, but he was told that he would be wheelchair bound for the rest of his life. And at this point he had been working on restoring the estate. He had met a beautiful German-born veterinary surgeon 
who he was absolutely in love with. And when he had this injury and he didn't know if he was ever going to walk again, he had been trying to propose marriage to her and she had been saying no because she didn't necessarily want to be a countess and have all of those responsibilities and have to be of the people. She just wanted to be a veterinary surgeon. And then it happened and she realized how much he loved him. And she's like, I will marry you tomorrow. Let's do it. And he was like, now he was the one who was like, I am not going to marry you until I know I can take care of myself because I am not going to like weigh you down, which of course is not how she looked at it at all. No. But he was like, no, like I need to learn how to walk again. And if I can walk down the aisle to you, then we'll get married. And he did. Oh my God. Amazing. Thank God. And they did. And even after that, they told him, you know, you're going to have a limp and a cane for the rest of your life. This was really hard on him because he was a serious endurance runner. He ran ultra marathons. So sad. But little by little, he trained and trained and trained Andy. And after that terrible event and all of these terrible events, he went back to ultra marathoning running for charity in races across the Sahara Desert. Um, That's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. This guy has so much grit and determination. I am just so, 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 so impressed with him. And in the end, I'll give you a little wrap up about where he is at now. But he's such an impressive person. Meanwhile, with this all going on, this is you know, years prior, I think his accident was in 2009. We are still in somewhere between 2006 and early 2007 at this point. So they bury Anthony, but then they finally get Tony's remains back and they have to go through another funeral for the 10th Earl, the one who was murdered. And they're planning everything. And Jamila with the brass balls over here starts lobbying the courts and the prison and the family saying, I am still the countess. He never remarried. I'm still the dowager countess of Shaftesbury. And I need to be there for my husband's funeral. And I want to host my husband's funeral. And I'm going to serve champagne because it was his favorite drink and pour some on the ground for him. And she's talking to the press. She's telling everyone, it's my responsibility as his wife to host his funeral, so they need to let me out. Not if you're convicted of his murder. Well, she hasn't been convicted yet. She's sitting in, in jail awaiting trial. But still, not if you're arrested and about to stand trial for his murder. You don't get to waltz all over his funeral. Yeah, so technically she was correct. She was still at this time the Dowager Countess, but not so technically. Everybody told her to F straight off and she did not get to attend the funeral, thank goodness. Yeah, thank goodness. Could you imagine being his family members? Ugh, disgusting. Not okay. In 2007, the trial began. During a pretrial hearing, Jamila's story had changed once more. At this point, she tells them that, oh, yeah, actually, I had asked my brother to come to intimidate the Earl into allowing me to keep my allowance. And he went rogue. That was the problem. We should have done a tally, like a drinking game sh- of how we many really times should've. her story changed. All of the many stories of Jamila over here. So the prosecution absolutely highlighted her nest of lies including a new one at trial where she claimed 
this is ridiculous. She claimed that she helped Muhammad put her husband's body into the trunk of Muhammad's car because she believed that Muhammad was taking him to the hospital. Wow. That might be the best one yet. It just defies rationality that you would think that putting somebody in the trunk would signify that they're going to the hospital because that's how all people travel to the hospital with people who care about them. I mean, that's how I traveled to the hospital when I was in labor. I was in the trunk. Dan know. threw you in the trunk. Good luck. I don't want to hear your contraction noises. <laughs> so crazy. So crazy. She said that with a straight face. Come on. <laughs> wow. So the prosecution painted Jamila as a greedy peddler of flesh who worshipped money above all else. Someone who would murder their own husband and attempt to put the blame on their own blood. Jamila's defense was that it was all Muhammad, and Muhammad's defense was that he had been drinking and smoking all day. He thought that the Earl was attacking his sister. He raced in, and the Earl attacked him, and he responded, but he basically blacked out. He was like, because I'd been drinking and smoking pot all day, like, I just responded in animal instincts, and I guess something bad happened. Not much of a defense. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> and is also, again, I brought this up when they first tried to spin this tale. The Earl had never been aggressive in his life, so it just did not make sense with what everybody knew of the man. No. Yeah, and most bizarrely, at one point, Muhammad stood up, pointed at the Ashley Coopers, the Shavesbury's family, and started screaming at them, you're the guilty ones. You, the rich, you wanted to take his inheritance. Uh, they are the inheritance. It's unbelievable. This couple of siblings is just wild. Does she look crazy in court? She was more subdued than you would think. The only time she was a little ridiculous was when they were trying to have her describe why the marriage ended. Of course, she didn't say it was anything about her faking a pregnancy to trap him. She was like, he was a disgusting, perverted man who was constantly drunk and, and evil. And, and she was just saying all of this stuff that was very slanderous. And I think that's why other women like Nadia and Lucille, who had been with him, made sure to talk to the author to let him know what a gentle soul Tony had been. Yeah. Because everyone who knew him was horrified by Jamila's testimony. So the prosecution gave all of the evidence that I previously brought up, as well as there was proof of a bank transfer from Jamila to Mohammed of 150,000 euros. So that all matched up with the evidence of the phone call. Which the phone call was pretty much the best case against her, as well as the fact that she had been caught scouting the place where the body was dumped. On May 25th, 2007, after deliberating for only two hours, the jury found both brother and sister guilty Thank of the Earl's murder. goodness. Thank goodness, brother and sister. They were sentenced to 25 years in prison. Under French law, they both had an automatic right to appeal their conviction, which results immediately if they appeal in a retrial. Now, Muhammad allegedly had a real breakdown, a real mental 
breakdown at this point. And he was admitted to a psych ward and he decided or whoever was helping him make decisions at this point decided that he was not going to appeal. Jamila did appeal. She was given a new trial and she was still found guilty, though her sentence was reduced from 25 years to 20 years. Wow, only 20 years? I think that the United States is among the highest of punishers, mostly in more of like the Western countries. I think in other places they do like max 20 years, even for murder, max 25 or something like that, 30. Wow. Yeah. 20 years does not seem like enough time personally for me. Was there any like opinion or feedback from the sister? Like how did she feel about the whole? She was ride or die with her brother and sister. She got on the stand and said that the Earl had hit on her, that he had called her after he was already married to Jamila and been like, oh, you're the prettier sister. I should have ended up with you. So we don't know if that was true based on the rest of their family. I'm guessing not. But she tried to aid in their defense whatever way she could, because she also didn't know that that phone call was being recorded, obviously. And she was trying to help especially Jamila out as much as she could, which also could have been financially motivated as well, because I think Jamila was financially doing the best out of the siblings. Yep. Okay. Yes. So when Jamila was resentenced, even though it was a shorter sentence, this was actually music to Nicholas's ears and all of those who cared about Tony, because it did mean that her appeals were exhausted and they could finally move forward. They could have closure and they could rebuild and rebuild he did. So he married that veterinarian and they had three of the cutest kids I've ever seen. There's a Vanity Fair article about him rebuilding his family's legacy and the estate and his kids are in it. They had a boy first named Anthony, of course. And then they had two little girls named Viva and Zara. So cute. So cute. They just look happy too. They look unbelievably wholesome. I mean, this whole story is so tawdry. And then you have Nicholas coming in. He was never supposed to be the heir. He was never supposed to be the Earl. There was like a Daily Telegraph article calling him the tattooed raver or something from his... DJ days and even pictures now I don't see any like visible tattoos so I think it's kind of funny that that's how they refer to him but he swooped in and he has a great mind for business clearly a ton of commitment and he was the first earl to live in St. Giles in 60 years wow yeah and so he had also built up quite a resume professionally as well he had worked in digital strategy and business development for a venture fund. He raised over $5 million for Saatchi Online. He'd also been the chief operating officer of a company called GoMix, which is an interactive music software platform. So he had been killing it. And he put $10 million of his own money into the restoration of St. Giles, his ancestral home that was built in 1651. That is so awesome. Yeah. And he just started aggressively going after this project. And I think it was very metaphorical too, because 
everything that they represented, that they had done such great works for so many generations had been kind of brought down into the mud with all of the business surrounding his father's murder. And he is physically rebuilding this home while he's building this new generation of Shaftesbury's that will hopefully be of the abolitionists who helped abolish slavery and little baby chimney sweeps and less of the uh, marauding cocaine users, you know? Yep. Yep. (laughs) So yeah, he won a million awards for his work. There was like so many listed on his Wikipedia site that I can't even get into all of them, but it was like the best conservation of an old home, the best rescue of a historic building site and like tons. The Sotheby's Award for all of the UK's like most amazing restoration. So the family lives in a small residential wing while the rest of the grounds and the beautiful building are now available for weddings, concerts, other events. And I think they do some other really amazing things on the grounds now. So amazing. I want to go. I do too. It looks amazing. It's gorgeous. I'll put a picture up on the Instagram. As far as I know... Jamila and her brother remain incarcerated in France. And, you know, when Jamila gets out, she's going to be well into her 60s and just have a feeling that her old job might not be waiting for her anymore. I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't think Madame Catherine would put up with that shit. Take her back. Maybe if she could be like her. Stole the words right out of my mouth, Jessica. (laughs) Great vibes. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So I hope you guys enjoyed our 100th episode. And I hope we have 100, 200, 300 more because we love doing this. We love communicating with you guys and you make our heart sore. So thank you. Andy, do you want to say anything? (laughs) No, I was just going to tease you about saying heart sore. Oh, like heart sore like an eagle, not sore like sad and it hurts. Yeah. I was hoping it was that. Like eagly. Like eagly. The other thing is you guys could probably tell that I'm the person that always makes people go around the Thanksgiving table and say what they're thankful for. What would, and... make, what would make anyone think that? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so if you think I gush a little too much, it's just in my nature. In conclusion, on that vein, actually... I think it's important, and this story teaches us as well, to not forget who lifted you up and got you where you were going and maybe introduced you to a very nice Earl who wants to marry you. So, guys, I'm just saying I'll never make you curtsy to me. No, (laughs) never. (laughs) I'm kidding. Also, I don't think it's a bad idea to try a little SPF. I mean, I'm like a sun baby. I love the sun, but I've just... I. I've been using SPF lately, so. Yeah, everyone could use an SPF. Yeah, let's all get on the sunscreen train. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Thank you so much. Love you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.